0: Our meditation hymn, we're going to do a little bit differently this morning. You can follow along in the order of service. We'll sing it seated. It's hymn number 1007, There's a River Flowing in My Soul. Marshall's going to play it through for us one time, and then there will be a reading. And then we'll sing verse 1 together. Then there'll be another reading, and we'll sing verse 2. And one more reading, and we'll sing verse 3. So please join in.
1: first reading is called Her Head by Joan Murray who writes Near a Kuvukeni in Natal, South Africa a woman carries water on her head after a year of drought when one child in three is at risk of death she returns from a distant well carrying water on her head the pumpkins are gone The tomatoes withered, yet the woman carries water on her head. The cattle crawls are empty, the goats gaunt. No milk now for children, but she is carrying water on her head. The engineers have reversed the river. Those with power can keep their power, but one woman is carrying water on her head. In the homelands where the dusty crowds watch the empty trucks the empty roads for water trucks one woman trusts herself with treasure and carries water on her head the sun does not dissuade her not the dried earth that blows against her as she carries the water on her head in a huge and dirty pail with an idle handle resting on a narrow can This woman is carrying water on her head. This woman who girds her neck with safety pins. This woman who carries water on her head trusts her own head to bring to her people what they need now. Between life and death, she is carrying them water on her head. Please join in verse 1.
2: Speaks of Rivers by Langston Hughes. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids beside it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the river's.
0: How many, many ways there are to speak about the meaning of water in our lives. Living water, life-giving, life-sustaining, life-weaving, and life-reviving water. Water like a river flowing through us, speaking to us, and telling us that we are somebody. Water that gathers us together beside a shining river inviting us to lay our burdens down and be soothed by a melody of peace. Water that can bind the people together from their origins through their enslavement and on to their liberation. Water from which hope can spring. Water that can cleanse our hearts and Purify our intentions to love the earth and all its creatures. We have so many ways to speak of water. And we must also today speak of the endangerment of this precious and life sustaining substance in our lives. This year, the UU Ministry of Earth has selected sacred waters as the theme for our Earth Day study and worship. You see, we could speak today about the meaning of water in our lives. We could name our gratitudes, and we could weave a rich and beautiful worship together. And I want to do that, and we will do those things. But if we do not also speak about how our gratitude can fail us, how we overlook water and take it for granted and fail to consider the consequences of that, then we could not truly call ourselves ourselves people of compassion, people of faith who also seek justice. The book of Genesis from the Hebrew Testament tells us that in the beginning of time, there was water. It reads, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome it separated the waters and called the dome sky. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and then let the dry land appear. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together were called seas Many world religions have looked to water as a sacred source, a potent symbol, and an essential part of their ritual practices. The most ancient Hindu writings speak about the Ganges River and the mother goddess Ganga who personifies the river. For many Hindus, life is considered incomplete without a pilgrimage to bathe in the river Ganges. And despite its severe pollution today, the sacred Ganges water is still believed by many to have healing properties when it is drunk. Among the people of southern Peru and Bolivia, Lake Titicaca is believed to be the place of the origins of the Inca people and also the place where their ancestors return after death. In ancient Greece and Babylonia and Israel, what are rituals and initiations for consecration and for priesthood? Very similar rituals to baptism were performed, predating that practice which we mainly associate with the Christian religion. In the Zen Buddhist tradition, the confluence of two rivers and a mountain defines a place that is sacred, where vital energies are generated and where a monastery is worthy of being built. Such a place exists north of here at the Zen Mountain Monastery in Mount Tremper, New York. When the essential, physical, and tangible life-giving properties of water become woven together with spiritual significance and symbolism, specific places and specific uses of water then take on great meaning in our lives. When we have those moments of encounter with water, whether it be in the landscape or a part of a ritual practice, it becomes memorable for us, moments when the sacred and the everyday become joined together. In my life, water has been a recurring resource for my reflection and my meaning making I've always lived in proximity to water. As a child, I was able to wander around the streams and the woods and the pond in the cow pasture out back of my grandmother's farm in North Carolina. And I grew up within driving distance of the Atlantic Ocean and also Appalachian mountain streams and grew up knowing both well. For several years, I lived in Tallahassee where I discovered a new ecology of cypress lakes and salt marshes, fresh oysters and mullet, and the warm, shimmering Gulf of Mexico. But other than that, I've always lived near the Atlantic coast and always within walking distance of a stream or a river. I grew up in a family who loved to fish the ocean surf. And I was actually afraid of worms and I thought fish guts were pretty disgusting. So I was kind of useless on these family trips for most people's thinking. But these pilgrimages to the coast, the long days on the beach, and the ritual fish fry dinners that followed throughout the year were truly sacred time for my family. My dad also loved to body surf in the ocean One of my earliest memories of the beach, I must have been very young, was wading out into the waves with him carrying me in his arms and with me clinging to his neck because I was terrified. I remember those waves being so big, seemingly, and so loud. And I remember his snug arms holding me and confidently moving us forward into deeper water, never letting me go, waiting for me to relax, and then safely returning us to the shore with a smile. I believe that that experience has resonated within me at times throughout my life, when I have found myself again in deep and turbulent waters needing to hold on and to trust until I knew that I was safe again. In my young adult years, I found myself wading out into water again as I learned to fly fish. I still wasn't touching worms back then. I do touch them now. Um, But with dry flies, that wasn't a problem I actually took my first class in the technique of casting and the use of the flies at the Fox Lane Middle School, not too far from here. Wading out into a stream, something special happened to me. I learned from the fish how to walk gently in their water and how to stand behind rocks that would break the current and let me rest and watch my surroundings. I learned to search the stream bed and watch the water surface to see how the mayflies were hatching, just as the trout did, or so I imagined. I learned how to catch and clean my dinner, although I mainly preferred to catch and gently release those fish back into their habitat. And it really did not matter much to me that my cast, I'm sure, left a lot of fish laughing at my ineptitude. For me, the fishing was mainly an excuse to wade out into the water and to ponder life from a new perspective. I'm sure you, too, have had experiences with water that have captivated your heart and moved your spirit The theologian Benjamin Stewart, writing about the relationship of water and sacred experience, points out that there are three kinds of encounters we might have with water. One is with the oasis. The oasis holds the water of life. The oasis is fertile and nourishing. It's a place of flourishing, succulent growth. It's refreshing and life-restoring for those who are parched and dry and weary. It's a place of release, a sanctuary, a time and place apart. Then there's the deep pool. Water in deep pools takes us into mysterious depths, past the point of clear vision from the surface. An encounter with such depth may be tranquil and full of peace, or it may be unsettling and ask much courage of us. To dive deep and to surface again is to have experienced something new. And the third is the experience of flowing water, water with power and movement, water that is untamed, water journeying forward, carrying us, leading us, cleansing, renewing, ever-changing, and changing what it touches. Perhaps you too have known water in one of these ways. So here is the conundrum for me. One more story for you about my relationship with water. I live in a house with a deep well and good tasting pure water that flows easily and abundantly from my many faucets. I wash my face, my hands, my body, my hair, my clothing, my dishes, my pots and pans, my counters and my floors, sometimes my car, soon my deck furniture, and all without much thought about this water that I am using. I brush my teeth and I use water to cook and I make coffee and tea really without any thought of the sacred I do feel deep gratitude when I water my plants and my garden beds and when I wash my vegetables and my fruit, but if the truth be known, my thoughts are truly not on the water itself, but on the abundance that I am handling. For me, water is readily available and convenient and clean. While I hold sacred reflections about how water has been present in my formation as a person, I also live rather mindlessly disconnected from the reality that others live in different relationships with water than I do. For them, water is scarce, a long walk from home, expensive, heavy to carry, or unclean, For some, water is disappearing or becoming toxic even as their livelihood depends upon it. I am confronting my insufficient gratitude for what I have been given without merit. And also, I'm aware that I now know just enough to realize my own disconnection and I am embarrassingly ignorant about my little place, but my place in the growing water concerns of our time. Here's one example of what I've become aware of. I probably drink about 300 gallons of water a year, more or less, and I may use between 50 and 100 tons of water around my home in a year but to feed and clothe me for a year is estimated to take between 1,500 and 2,000 tons of water. That's more than half the content of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, all for me. My water footprint as a member of a Western country on the rest of the world is becoming a serious global issue. When my T-shirt is made from Pakistani cotton and I eat rice from Thailand and I drink coffee from Latin America, I become connected to the hydrology of those ecosystems. I take my share from the Indus River and from the Mekong River and from the Costa Rican rains. Around the the globe, rivers and lakes are running dry even as their water is leaving their country to produce the goods that are exported to other countries. Economists have a name for this. They call it the the water footprint, and it's called virtual water. Every ton of wheat that sits on a dockside waiting export carries with it in a virtual form a thousand tons of water that it took to grow it. Some countries with growing water shortages actually are exacerbating their problems because their economy is linked to this virtual exporting of water in the products that they send to consumers around the globe. So this is only one aspect of many ecological and eco-justice issues related to how water is used and misused in our interdependent web of life together. There are needs to improve conservation and water management based on our increased understanding of how watersheds work in their ecosystems. And there's a call now for a new water ethic, an ethic that will actually cherish water and respect waterways and the ecosystems that surround them rather than impose the human will to divert the water for our own purposes. There's a need to restore rivers and floodplains and refill lakes and wetlands, but without leaving people thirsty and without jobs. In places of scarce water, people must learn to be in right relationship with each other, to share, rather than fighting so that some win out over the other. There is very much for us to learn about. As a justice-seeking people of faith, we are called to acknowledge with great gratitude the resources of water we enjoy, and also to educate ourselves about our relationship through our interdependent web with the waters of this world. Last year, I understand that a number of you took the Earth Day 40 40 challenge here to study and engage in an ethical eating practice for 40 days together. So I invite you today to join me in this year's 40/40 challenge to examine just one aspect of your own use of water for 40 days. I have an information sheet that's full of possibilities that you might consider, and I can give it to you as you leave this morning. We can also develop an online group where we, over the next 40 days, can share together our reflections and our discoveries as we look a little bit at what water means in our lives. So I hope you'll think about joining me in that. Water is a renewable resource, and it's a gift for us to, share, to cherish. It's a source of sacred wisdom and reflection, and it certainly deserves our attention and our care in the words of Thich Nhat Hanh the Vietnamese monk when the rain of compassion falls even a desert becomes an immense green ocean blessed be and may it be so